religious people. Okay? So let's pray, and then we'll get to the text this morning and uh, see what the Lord might say through His Word. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning as uh, we bow before Your Word, as Your people, um, my heart uh, is burdened for those that may think they belong, but, but don't. So God, this morning, would your voice be clear? Would your call be clear? Would the gospel be clear? So that those who have ears and hearts and flesh might respond to what it is that you'd you'd say, how you'd prompt, how you'd move. And God, that you would, through your word this morning and the proclamation of it, change us. If we're saved, God, that we'd find fresh faith, be filled with hope, that you would mold us and shape us to be the image of your son. For those that are in the house, but don't belong, God, that they would hear the invitation clearly this morning to belong through you, through Christ, you've given on our behalf. Pray all this in Jesus' name, that you would equip us with what we need. Eyes, hearts, and ears that are spiritual to receive what you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Acts chapter 2. We'll be in um, verses uh, 29 through uh, 39 this morning. And while you're there, I'll let you get there. But then I'll also have you flip over to... um, to Matthew chapter 21, which is where we started this morning out. Rebecca came up and she read about the triumphal entry, and we sort of focus on that because uh, it's, I don't know, I mean, obviously it's a big deal that uh, Jesus is coming in, and in some sense he's being uh, recognized for being king. He's recognized, but not for the king that he actually is. And uh, so, we, so we make hay with this because it's, uh, it's an important thing, and then we, we like to say, look how fickle the crowds were there. You know, shouting, uh, you know, Hosanna, son of David, you're the king. And then just a week later, right, they're crucify him. And so um, what's interesting about this story um, is, is not just that Jesus rides in on a donkey and the people are declaring him, but every place where this is recorded in the Gospels, it's followed by another significant event, which in uh, Matthew chapter 21 comes in verse 12. You'll be familiar when I start reading with what's happening. So if you want to flip over there, Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And it's this. So so after he rode in on on the, the donkey, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to see him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Push pause. Do you you know what Hosanna means? Says, save now. Save now. Hosanna, right? So this is what they're, they're, they're declaring. Save us now. And they hear the children crying this out. And now the scribes and the Pharisees are indignant. Verse 16. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. 
Have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. So this uh, cleansing of the temple, it happens in all the other Gospels. And Mark gives uh, another little detail about what Jesus does besides turning over the tables of the money changers and those um, who were selling sacrifices. It also says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And you're like, why why does Jesus care about people carrying through the temple? Well, this is an important thing. So Jesus hailed as king, uh, king of uh, the Jews, Hosanna, son of David. He enters Jerusalem. But he doesn't go to the palace to sit on the throne of David. Though they're declaring him, save us now, son of David, go, you are king. He doesn't do that. Instead, what happens is Jesus goes to the temple and he cleans out his father's house. So he goes into a different place than he's expected to go to ascend to ownership or rulership or authority over that that space, which is exactly what we would expect um, the Messiah to do. And so we have um, the cleansing of the temple happens after the triumphal entry. Though they're declaring him king, he doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple. And this is an important idea. Now, with that in mind, let's flip over to Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 39. So just to catch you up where we've been, this is in the midst of Peter's speech to all those that are surrounded. And remember, it's the day of Pentecost. All of the Jews that are uh, over a certain age are supposed to, males are supposed to present themselves in the temple. There's been a great crowd gathered, and so they see all the signs and wonders and the people declaring um, the, the works of God in their own language. And um, so here it is, picking up uh, in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you this with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So uh, David's tomb is just outside of where the temple was at, and so he's basically like pointing to it. He's like, I know where David's bones are. He's dead, okay? Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So, so he's saying, um, in David's lifetime, he prophesied uh, about someone else because God had promised that there would be somebody else sitting on his throne. Well, David's not sitting on the throne anymore. His son Solomon is not sitting on the throne anymore. So he's saying this had to be fulfilled. And so what David foresaw and spoke about was the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. So he's saying, he's not sitting on the throne, and uh, uh, he did not ascend. He was not resurrected. He's dead. Okay, But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, that's the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So if you weren't with us or you forgot, remember that as Jesus ascends, he's ascending to the throne to sit down at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made a footstool. So then he declares, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's not redundant. Those are two different titles. He is both king and Sovereign over all, and he is Christ the Messiah, the anointed one uh, for uh, sin, the sacrifice for sin. And this is the Jesus whom you crucified. This news about the one that they had declared the, the, the king of David, the son of David, is the one they crucified. That news, they heard this, and they're cut to the heart. Something that can only happen with help 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, um, we have some language here about the, the son of David and who's sitting on the throne and why and the, and the titles that Jesus holds. And then we also have Jesus doing some specific things after he's declared um, king by the people. And um, so uh, picking up that idea and sort of where we left off last week, and I'm sorry if you, if you're, if you haven't been here, but um, effectively I want to um, only retain the idea that we are actually called to do something specific with the Word of God, and that's respond to it, be obedient to it. And so we have a lot of ways of um, qualifying what that might mean. We, we might think, we, so we must obey all, all the rules, all the laws, all the things that say do this, don't do that, or don't do this, and do do that. If, if I do those, then, then I'm obeying God, and then I'll be acceptable, and that will be what it is that God wants from us. Well, I, I want to, um, I'm not going to spend this morning talking about living a life of holiness and sanctification. That's an important topic, but I don't think um, that's particularly where this text needs to go. Um, I just want to do a couple of steps to remind us, to, to push you down that road, if you're somebody that says, I, I, I have grace, and so I don't need to do anything obedient. So, so you, you sort of enter the house, and then... Um, if you miss the story, you, you, you go out and you go in the house and you go and you go out in the world and you come back in and sometimes you drag dirty stuff into the house, right? And, um, and so God's house is meant to be clean. And if you belong in the house, then you two are supposed to help keep the house clean. And you do that by making sure the house is picked up, but also making sure that you're clean and not dragging stuff in, okay? So allow the metaphor. So we sort of pitch um, like a hippie version of Jesus that's super soft, doesn't care if you're sin, he just loves you the way you are, and he wants to affirm you, and all of that. And um, you know what? God loves you where you're at, and that's why he gave his son. If he didn't think it was necessary for his son to die for your sin, he wouldn't have sent him. So the fact that he left heaven to come down means that your sin is a big deal. Are you with me? Okay, he, he commands us to be holy because the God that we serve is holy and the place that he resides is holy. His presence is holiness. It is other. It is set apart for um, complete righteousness, okay? So here in 2 Corinthians, just a moment, I'll, I'll read this to you um, so that you can hear this. Do not be unequally yoked with believers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement, listen, has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. So what's the big deal about Pentecost? The big deal about Pentecost is that God is moving the place of his residence from a building, a structure, the temple, into his people that are now the building, the structure, the temple. So all the stuff that was important about the temple, the building, is also now important about us. And this is the transition that's happening. So here now, what, what Paul's telling us, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's Paul saying, be holy. So if you think that you can just sort of like walk in disobedience and claim grace, you're wrong. 
Okay? Now, before you feel so much condemnation that uh, you can't move, um, the, the important thing is this. So, so we say, the Holy Spirit is in us. We're the temple of the living God now. Here we are. Hooray and amen. But guess what? Jesus has the authority and the ability to cleanse the temple. Because that's what he did. And that's the church in your life of anything that obscures Jesus as Lord and Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus has the authority and the ability to cleanse the temple. That's the church in your life of anything that obscures Jesus as Lord and Christ. Now, I want to... Um, I want you to see what happens when, G when Jesus walked into the temple and uh, he starts flipping stiff over. And um, so, so you got to zoom out for a second because what is, it's called the cleansing of the temple, but why, why is it called that? Does Jesus remove all of the sin from the temple? Emphatically not, because everybody is there to offer sacrifice for sin, okay? And, and if he was going to cleanse the temple of all the sin, he would have to take all the people out, but that's not what he did. He made a couple of specific actions to cleanse the temple of something important. And uh, that is things that obscure the centrality of Jesus as Christ, as the anointed one, as the sacrifice for sin. So um, I'll just point out a few things. <laughs> Hello? Maybe it's the Lord. Should we answer? <laughs> Just like, like uh, Samuel. Yes, Lord? <laughs> Your servant hears. <laughs> okay. Okay. Boy, that's going to be tricky for me. I get distracted on the little things. <laughs> so Jesus does something specific to cleanse the temple. Um, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. The sacrifices are a shadow of the true sacrifice, which is Christ. And the temple is a copy of heaven where God dwells. No. So, so those um, statements are all pointing to, to something specific. When you think about the function of the temple, you would think about um, maybe something like, well, it's the place where God dwells. But before it's that, it is something that, that um, is supposed to point you towards Jesus. Now, that's not me saying that. That's, that's what the Bible says. That all of these things were types and shadows to point us towards Christ. So if there's activities or people or things going on inside the temple that somehow obscure that, that's what Jesus is getting rid of. So you had, you had people that were selling sacrifices. And um, some people defend that. They're like, well, you know, people travel from all over the place. It's, it's Passover. So you could, you could sell certain things. But the problem is that, um, like, like what David says, um, when, uh, when he's, he's offered a, a, a threshing floor and a place to make a sacrifice and sacrifices and all that's just given to him, he says, I will not make a, a sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. And so the idea here is that when, when, um, when the, the sacrifice that is supposed to be pointing you towards something else becomes a transaction, a money transaction, it obscures the reality of what the sacrifice is supposed to be showing you, which is, look, you, you need blood to atone for this, but this blood doesn't actually atone for anything. We find that out in Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins. So all the time, always looking forward to something else. There had to be something else, and that something else was Jesus. So the sacrifices are a shadow of Christ. They point towards Christ. He was the substance. So too was the law. You say, well, the law tells us how to, how to do good and how to not do good. And to break it is to, to be at odds with God. Well, we, we find out later in Romans and then um, in Galatians that the law was 
um, to, to show us our sin. The law shows us what, what we have wrong with us. It can't produce life or righteousness. It has to be, it has to, it says if the, if, if the law was able to do that, then Jesus is unnecessary at that point. So the law also is called a tutor or a teacher, something that brings us or points us towards Jesus. So all of these things are pointing towards Jesus. So what Jesus is doing in the cleansing of the temple is actually removing all of the obscuring things that, that would point towards their need for a Lord in Christ. Okay? So that, that's what happens. Because um, where else can a sinner go anyway? Well, what Jesus says um, in response to, because they want to know, by, by what uh, authority are you doing this? Who is this guy? Uh, do you hear what they're calling you, the son of David? All of the responses to, to Jesus, uh, Jesus' activity in the temple is, is questioning what he is. And his response is that, um, do you not know that I, uh, I, I would be uh, about my father? Well, sorry, wrong, wrong quote. He said, um, uh, a zeal for, your, for my father's house will consume me. This is something that John recollects later. But then also, um, he, he points towards um, my house being a house of prayer. I'm sorry, I couldn't get there. There you go. My house being a house of prayer. Uh, but importantly, not just stopping there, for all nations. This is a quote from Isaiah 56, where um, Isaiah's prophesying about um, the Lord gathering people other than um, just the Jews to himself. Hear this in Isaiah 56. So the foreigners that join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to me besides those I have already gathered. So, so what Jesus is upset about is not that there are sinners in the temple, but that there are people that are supposed to be able to observe what's going on that are outside of the Jewish people and kind of observe what happens in the temple and see the need for Christ. And that's being obscured by the activities that are happening. So we have people that are changing money, offering sacrifices, and these become transactional instead of um, realizing that um, the, the need is that God wants us to rend our hearts not offer something very external and superficial like tearing our garments. That's Joel who says that. The Lord asks that you would rend your hearts, not your garments. And then there's this other thing that says where he, he's preventing people from carrying anything through the temple. So there's a couple different understandings on that. And um, I think it's primarily this. If you were a Jew, you could go into uh, the outer court. You could also go into the inner court of the Jews if you were a, a male, Right? And, and that was, uh, you could walk through there. But um, what, what happened is that because of where the temple was positioned, that people would just use it as a shortcut. Right? But only, you could only do that if you were a Jew. Okay, so now I need you to think about this. Uh, fast forward to modern day. Think about the idea of utilizing the, the name or belonging to a church to shortcut your way to, to access something else. Utilizing your privilege of, of calling yourself a Christian, belonging in the church to just make convenience for yourself, to get to your goal. This is just a simple, it's making, making what is holy common by saying, I'll just use it as a, 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 a shortcut to where I'm actually trying to get to. I have no business here. I just need to carry this load, not around the temple, but through it. And I think that's, 
That's what Jesus is preventing in that moment when it says, and he wouldn't allow anybody to carry anything through the temple. So um, Jesus absolutely is, is supposed to be the central figure. and We're supposed to be looking to him uh, as our atonement for sacrifices. And um, the, the hard thing about that is that we have now this idea that our sins are paid for in Christ, but also that he demands that, that we be holy. And so where does that, where does that fall into legalism and how do we, how do we reconcile these, um, these two things? So um, I grew up in what's called a, a holiness denomination, okay? And um, it's, uh, well, it doesn't really matter. So, so the, the point is this. The emphasis on um, what, you, what you do and do not do, being a good person, not breaking certain commands, and uh, that, that was really emphasized. And so the, the hard part about that is that you become a rule follower instead of a God lover. And so um, I, I remember being um, terrified that if I sinned, that I would lose my salvation. And that's, that's sort of what's preached in holiness denominations a lot of times. So if you sinned, hopefully you lived until Sunday when you could go to the altar again and also be, be born again or be saved again because goodness knows if you were carrying around some sin between now and Sunday, who knows what would happen if you got hit by a bus, right? And uh, I make light of it, but I, that's the truth of, of what's um, at the heart of that. And it, and it forces people into legalism. And so I don't know um, what your experience is with that. But my experience was, was not good. So you, you need to hear that it's possible that maybe you haven't been in a holiness denomination, but you've sat in church your whole life. But you think that by coming to church or, or belonging in church or not breaking certain rules causes you to belong, makes you a Christian, makes you right with God. And, and those things are, are emphatically not true. You can sit in Burger King forever, but that does not make you a hamburger. Are you with me? Right? Just simply, simply being in the church does not make you a Christian. But what it does do, sometimes by sitting in Burger King, you start to smell like burgers. And sometimes by sitting in church, you absorb enough Christianity that it inoculates you to what the gospel actually says. So that when you hear the real gospel, it doesn't hit you because you don't think you need it. Because you'll point to something else as your reason for belonging. But I didn't break those rules. Or, or you'll say, well, it's all covered by grace, even though you're walking in total disobedience. And so you, you've got to hear that God calls you to be holy, but you don't belong because you're holy. Because you, you, didn't, you didn't get invited because you were holy. And so you can't retain because you're holy. So, so something else is at work here. I, um, I started, um, I introduced the metaphor of marriage last week where two people come to the altar and instead of exchanging vows about I will love, honor, and cherish no matter what, somebody opens this giant rule book and they begin to proceed to read off minutia of this is what it means to love me. This is, this. so suppose you are, um, you're, you're observing somebody else's marriage and, and you see somebody completely just disrespecting their spouse. And they do it continually, all the time, but they've not broken any of those like major rules. They're like, I'm not cheating on 
my spouse. I, I don't, I don't um, not take care of them. I don't, so, so there's all these like legalist qualifications on how they're still married, but yet in, in complete disrespect of their spouse. You would say that person does not what the other person. They don't, they don't love them. So, so marriage is not built on rules. It's built on the love that you give, okay? And um, so at the same time, what if um, somebody wasn't, wasn't doing the things that you generally assume or, or they are doing the things that you assume um, would be qualifying for marriage? So they say, we live together and uh, I do take care of them and I do love them, but they didn't have that beginning point. And what would you say? You would say, you need to what? Get married. Okay. So are the people that are... Um, are the people that are loving each other and doing all the performance parts of marriage, are they married? No, they're not married by following the rules of marriage. Now, at the same time, are the, the guy that's not following the rules or the girl that's not following the rules of marriage, but yet doesn't love the other person, are they married? Technically. Interesting. So, with that in mind, okay, so... Here's, here's where the, the problem is. Because we think of obedience to God as the minutia of the rules. When what God wants from us, what He demands of us, is you love the Lord your God with all of your heart. With all your... And sometimes, obedience is not measured in right or wrong, but in when you're wrong, reconciling. It's the, it's the same thing. We don't walk in perfect, in perfect integrity in all that we do. Believe it or not, I have made a mistake before in our marriage. It's not, you're right, it's not true. Rebecca has made a mistake. And do you know what she did? No. Listen, when you love the other person and you recognize that you violated the, the love covenant, you reconcile it. That too is obedience. That's how you can walk in obedience always, but not be perfect. Because we're not perfect. Is that enough to, to, to move on? So God's, God's bringing awareness of our sin is a tool to bring us to repentance so that we might continue to walk in obedience and sanctification. So back to the holiness thing. You don't get reborn every time you make a mistake. I don't have to go back and get remarried to Rebecca every time I do something wrong. It never happens, but when I do, I don't have, we don't have to go back to the altar. We don't start over again. We're not born again every time. We don't have a bunch of infantile Christians walking around, but this, this is our problem when we think of it that way. Right? There's no way to get to maturity unless it's pick yourself up and keep walking towards Christ. Okay? So, awareness of sin is a good thing. It helps us, it helps us see the places where we're not in compliance in our life. It's, it's not to push it away and say, well, I'll, I'll either ignore it because it's covered by grace, or that's legalistic to follow those, those kinds of rules. So, um, what we find out in Pentecost is that um, Peter is declaring this message, not to um, random Gentile jerk people that don't know who God is. Guys, he's in the temple with people coming to celebrate God. They think they know God. They're the religious people. You don't get more religious than, than the people that Peter's preaching to. And yet he tells them, you need the gospel. You need to hear this. Because you're the ones that crucified Jesus. But they didn't actually crucify Jesus, so somehow he's pinning this on them. Now, he declares this to a crowd. We don't know how hard the crowd is that gathers, or it's loud, loud, 
We don't know how large the crowd is that, that is gathered there, but we're told that there's 3,000 people that respond to this call. 3,000 people respond and are saved. Now think about the context of that being in a larger group of religious people that think that they don't need whatever it is that, that Peter's talking about. What do you mean, I don't know who God is? What do you mean that Jesus is the Lord in Christ? Right? I, I don't have a need for what it is that you're peddling. No, thank you, I'll, I'll walk away. But 3,000 people do respond to what it is that Peter has to say. And this is a reversal of what happens at Sinai. When, when the law is given, this external law that's written on the stones, and Moses goes up the mountain, and if you forget, the people go, we don't know what happened to Moses. So they try to appoint Aaron leader, they make the golden calf, and they dance around and do bad things. And then when he comes back down, the judgment on the people, do you remember how many people died? 3,000 in rebellion. Among the however many that were not. So we have here a fullness or reversal of those things about, about obeying the law and hearing the law and responding to the law, but it being about love. Okay, we're getting towards the end. Now one more in Luke chapter 11. This will be a familiar passage for a lot of you. In Luke chapter 11, we have a record of um, Jesus telling a series of parables. Where am I at? I'm sorry. Luke 15, that would be more helpful. There we go. Jesus is telling a, a series of parables in Luke chapter 15 of lost things. We have the parable of the, of the lost sheep, and then we have the parable of the prodigal son. This is a familiar one for you guys. But uh, it, it, so to, to not uh, drag you into the, the parts of this story, I don't think are particularly relevant this morning. Let me just recap it for you. There's a man who has two sons. The younger son decides he wants to take the father's inheritance and go and live his own life. He does that thing. He says he goes to a foreign land and he squanders in, in wild living. All that the father had given him. And so he finds himself um, destitute and uh, without any hope. And he begins to come to his senses, it says. And... Um, that's in verse 17. It says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's an important line there. Treat me as one of your, your hired servants. He's a son saying, I'll just come and serve at the, at the lowest level. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, 
This is important too. He, he doesn't actually arrive at the house. Well, he's, he's not even there yet. Well, he's a long way off. It says the father um, saw him, felt compassion, and he ran and embraced him. And he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Important line right there as well. Why not? Because all that I've done has, has uh, squandered your name and all that you've given and all of um, that I was entitled to as your son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Now, this son probably, I mean, he's, he's, he's been wild living. He's, he's got no money. He didn't have any food. He probably didn't show up wearing some nice, some nice threads. He probably doesn't have very much on at all. And so what happens here is that the father comes, gives him a robe, the best robe, and he put it on him. And he put the ring on his hand that symbolized his belonging to the, to the family. And they put shoes on his feet. And, they, and then he said, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. This is, uh, if you just want to push pause, that, that's, that's the story of a sinner saved. Amen. You were dead and you're alive. You brought nothing to the table. You didn't belong. You said, I'm not worthy to be called a son. You, you didn't offer a little bit of righteousness. You didn't offer a little bit of clothing. You didn't bring anything to the table. And God gives everything. Amen. And then he celebrates. This, this is all you bring to the table is sin and dirt. But hallelujah and amen, you're accepted as a son or a daughter. So he brings him. That's, that's, that's how a sinner is saved. But now listen, now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Well, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. You need to know that entreated means like he pleads. He makes this, this case that, that hopefully would not be refused. He, he petitions him. He says, Listen, you need to come in. He's inviting him in. The son wants to go in the house. The first son did, but didn't think he belonged. He didn't have anything that made him belong. He brought nothing to the table, but the father gave him everything to belong. This other son can come in the house, but refuses to go in the house. He's invited by the father to come in the house. Why doesn't he want to come in? He's angry. He refused to go in. The father entreats him, and he answered his father, Look, these many years I have what? Served you. What did the first son say? I'm not worthy to be called a son, but I'll come and I'll, I'll serve you. If you'll only have me. And this son says, look, all the time I belonged, I have served you. Or you could put it this way, I have lived as a servant to you. In his mind. Never have I disobeyed your commandment. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him and said to him, listen, this is the father's response. Son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and he's alive. He was lost and is found. The, 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 um, the older son resists. And, and, and why does he resist? What does he have to say that um, why, why he won't um, go in? It's all about all the things that he has done. It's all of his qualifications. It's why he belongs and why um, 
he's not received anything from the Father that he believes that he's entitled to. He despised grace. He despised the grace that was given to the other son. He despised the grace of what the Father had already given him because he says, all that I had all along always belonged to you as a son. You could have accessed it. But he's angry. Believes the Father hasn't given him anything because his picture is so clouded by what he believes he's earned. So this is, this is a picture of self-righteousness, of self-sufficiency. I, you owe me, God, because I've served you. I've never disobeyed. I did all the right things and not the wrong things. God, you owe me. But he already had all those things because he was already called a son. But refusing to go in, refusing the invitation, sort of ironically is a twist of fate where he already belonged but now isn't able to partake in the joy, isn't belonging in the house with the Father. He he removes himself by his own self-sufficiency. So here's where I want to land this morning. In Hebrews uh, chapter 3, the preacher of Hebrews is is talking about uh, Moses and, and all that Moses did and how Moses was faithful in all the Lord's house. And then it says, but Jesus was faithful uh, more faithful in, in the Lord's house. And he's the one that built it. And then it goes on to talk about the problem of, um, of disobedience and unbelief. And unbelief. And um, it says that unbelief is a sin. And you would think, well, how can somebody that, that doesn't believe, how can that be sinful? But the, 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 the thing you need to hear this morning is that unbelief is not just for the person that doesn't know who God is. It's unbelief that you need God. It's unbelief that you need what God alone can provide. It, it's, the, it's the older son saying, I've earned everything that you're giving by grace. I'm entitled to it because of what I've done. Therefore, I don't need your grace. Amen. Where the, the, the first son had squandered everything, did nothing to deserve it, and could only receive what the father would give by grace. Often the person who's furthest from God and least able to hear the gospel is the one who thinks that they belong because of the things that they've done. Because how long you've been in church or because you do the right things and not the wrong things. I'm a good person. Lord, don't you know that I've served you these many years? The hard heart that persists in unbelief of their need for Christ and his righteousness is the hard heart of unbelief. Here's the problem with being a religious person. Religion or religious people tend to obscure grace. They obscure it by by, by two ways. They either say, it's it's something that I got at the entry point and it lasts forever and and there's no purpose for me to walk in obedience. That obscures what, what real grace is, which is belonging because God gave it to you, not because you earned it. But it, but it's, a, it's an ongoing thing where, where the Lord shows you sin and disobedience, you're reconciled. So, so the religious person looks at that and says, oh, it's covered by grace. Past, past present, future, all my sins are forgiven. The, the other person elevates the law and says, I belong, I'm religious, and I belong because I, I follow the law, not because of God's grace bringing me in, not because of Christ's righteousness. So the reconciliation of these 
two things is found in the heart of what Jesus does in cleansing the temple. To find the sacrifice and the atonement of Christ as your central need always. That's why the gospel is evergreen. It's not the entryway, it's the whole house. The gospel is that you didn't just need Jesus to get from dead to life, but you need Jesus to continue living. You need his sacrifice all the time to be reminded that you're not perfect. It's not your righteousness that causes you to belong in the house, but his. And so every time you find yourself outside of that righteousness, you return again to the centrality of I need Jesus. When we put up religious walls that obscures that and says, look at my righteousness, look how I follow the law, look what I've done, then we minimize our sin. And we, and we put something else at the center of where Christ is meant to be. So religious people today, or non-religious people, the gospel is that you belong by faith in Christ's atoning work because you are a sinful person and you brought nothing to the table. And trusting in his righteousness, not yours, makes you a son or a daughter. Amen. If you're trusting in anything else, or you see anything else, if I say, how do you know that you're saved, and you look at yourself, you've missed the gospel. The only way that you're saved is by looking at the sun and the cross. Amen. That's the only way. Not by your track record or lack thereof. So if, if you find this morning that maybe you've been a, trying to call yourself a hamburger in Burger King. Respond to what God shows you in reality, in his word. I want to pray this morning. We'll sing a song. We'll take communion. But take a few moments in your own, in your own heart to reflect on this truth. Heavenly Father, I'm reminded that um, we are all drawn into um, the trap of self-sufficiency, where we focus on our own, our own good deeds, our own works, our own lives, to try and qualify our belonging. God, we don't want to be a, a church of rule followers. We want to be a church of God lovers. Help us to see that obedience is repentance. Where we're a wayward, we find ourselves invited again back into the house. God, we bring nothing, but you supply everything. May we lay our lives and ourselves at your feet. That you would make us people that you call sons and daughters and enjoy your presence and your life.